0: For this week's podcast, I have a personal story to tell about how I was an accidental tourist when it came to the early days of plant biotechnology. I was never directly involved in the science of plant genetic engineering in the lab or anything, but somehow throughout my career, I've always been adjacent to the people who were the pioneers of that field. And I wanna talk about this because I think it matters that people know something about the actions and the motivations of the real people who made these advances possible. And I have the privilege of knowing these people as colleagues and often as friends. When it comes to the hyper-polarized debate about GMO crops, I think the human side of the story tends to get lost. My story isn't actually that much like the 1988 movie Accidental Tourist that starred William Hurt, Kathleen Turner, and Gina Davis, but I, I really like the title. And so that's what I'll be talking about on today's segment of Pop Agriculture. The first time I heard the term genetic engineering was in 1976 when I was taking a biochemistry graduate school course as, as a senior at Stanford University. It was team taught and the scientists who taught the part of the course that had to do with molecular genetics turned out to be some of the pretty famous figures in the beginning of that science. One was Paul Berg, who later won a Nobel Prize for his contributions, and two of the others were Stanley Cohen and Herb Boyer, and they also received multiple prizes. But they were the authors of certain patents about basic tools of biotechnology that essentially everybody doing medical or industrial or plant biotechnology needed, and it made a whole bunch of money for Stanford over the years. Well. The first breakthroughs in this new area of science had, had actually only started in 1972. So it was uh, rather new at the time I was hearing about it. But even so, even before that class of mine, Paul Berg and other organizers set up a thing that came to be called the Asilomar Conference. It was in 1975. And so these pioneers of genetic engineering got together and agreed on some rules. So how they would conduct their lab research because they wanted to be extremely careful about this whole new area that they were getting into. And, and until they understood more, they wanted to be just super precautionary about it. And frankly, I think that precautionary um, sort of atmosphere persisted even for 15 to 20 years after that. Now, I suppose if I had been a more savvy student, I would have chosen to pursue more education in future employment in the medical and industrial applications of biotech that sprang up from these early discoveries. For instance, by 1982, the new company Genentech had started producing human insulin for type 1 diabetics in a genetically engineered bacterium as an alternative to getting it out of the pancreases of pigs. The valuable applications of biotechnology, particularly in medicine, have never come under attack by the anti-GMO forces. And the results have been quite beneficial for the health of modern society. But as I described in an earlier podcast, I decided I wanted to be part of the solution to feeding the world and chose a path towards an agricultural science career. That choice ended up taking me to the University of California, Davis, uh, which was a well-respected agricultural school. So I ended up in this lab of Dr. Mary Saul, who was responsible for research about the diseases of grapes and whose program was very field-oriented. And as that turned out, it was actually a really good fit for me. But for the specific project I took on for my master's, I actually needed to analyze certain samples in the lab that I collected in the vineyards. And um, it was a technology called an immunoassay. That meant that even though lots of my research was conducted outside in the vineyards, which is a great place to be, I still had to bring these samples back to the lab. And that put me in daily contact with graduate students and postdocs who were working on the very early stages of what turned out to be the whole science of uh, genetic engineering of plants. And there was kind of a divide in our plant pathology department at that time. Those of us who did field work with real farmers called those more basic scientists uh, lab rats, and they called us dirt biologists. This was a good-hearted rivalry because it wasn't, you know, the stuff of the Capulets or the Montagues. It, It was really not antagonistic. I just happened to be able to live in both of those worlds. And I was, however, in a unique position to spend time with folks on both sides of the aisle. Now, the advancement of genetic engineering on the biomedical side has been very rapid because they could do what they wanted to do mostly in bacteria, and uh, people already knew how to genetically engineer bacteria by the 1970s. But the researchers who wanted to sort of take this technology to plants, it wasn't clear in the late 70s how that was going to work. In fact, it didn't happen until the mid-80s. It's funny. But the two basic science labs I happened to visit in uh, use of equipment that I needed for my work had sort of worked on the two initial ideas about how you would do plant biotech. One of the labs was that of Dr. Robert Shepard, and his groups worked with a particular virus that infects plants in the brassica or cabbage family. Now, most viruses of plants are made of RNA, But this cauliflower mosaic virus was made of DNA. So it sort of seemed like a candidate for what you might someday engineer plants with. And I became friends with the graduate students and postdocs in the lab and heard all about their efforts. They were trying to sequence the DNA of that virus. Now, With the tools that are available today, that probably would take less than a day to do. But back then, it was much more than a year of work by several people. And the other lab I needed to regularly visit was uh, run by another highly esteemed scientist named Dr. Tuni Kasugi. His group worked on a, a bacterial plant pathogen called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. And actually, it's sort of nature's genetic engineer for plants. When that bacteria gets into a plant, like a grapevine or another woody plant, say through an injury, it inserts its DNA into plant cells, and then those cells start to serve the needs of the bacteria. They start growing in an unorganized way, which forms a gall at the point of the injury. And then the cells in that genetically modified gall make a unique kind of amino acid that is actually only available as food for that bacterium. So basically, the bacteria gets the plant to make a home for it, and a safe food supply just for the bacteria. So the people in Kusugis lab and elsewhere around the world were trying to figure out how could we sort of tame that bacteria to use it for genetic engineering of plants. So those accidental tourist interactions with these pioneers of plant biotech started in the late 1970s. And by early 80s, some venture capitalists had come to UC Davis and initiated a round of startup companies with the ambition of doing plant biotech. And that was really kind of a long shot at the time because nobody had quite yet figured out how to genetically engineer a plant. So about the time I finished uh, my PhD and left Davis, one of my good friends named Luca from Dr. Kosugi's lab went on to be one of the first employees of one of those startups called CalGene. I learned this later, but when Luca got to the company, which started in a garage in Davis, he was asked to come up with his own project. And he decided to see if it might be possible to genetically engineer tolerance to a herbicide called glyphosate, otherwise known as Roundup. Now, the sort of anti-GMO narrative is that that was, you know, a kind of idea that was schemed up in the boardrooms of a big business. In truth, however, it was basically an idea from a very academically oriented, very non-commercially oriented uh, Italian postdoc who went into the business. And what Luca actually managed to do was demonstrate that the possibility of glyphosate resistance existed, but at that time he could only do it in bacteria because we still didn't know how to do plants. So for a couple of years in the early 80s, I was employed at a remote experiment station for Colorado State University in Western Colorado. But in 1984, I ended up taking a job with the DuPont Company in Delaware, and I I was working on the discovery of new fungicides. However, I had lots of friends and colleagues that were in the central research department, and they were working on some plant genetic engineering ideas. So I was able to keep up with what was going on in that moving science in the early to mid-1980s, the growing plant biotech community held several public conferences in order to gather input on how this new science should move forward and how it should be regulated. So I had a chance to attend a meeting that was called the Risk Assessment for Plant Biotechnology. It was held on the UC Davis campus, and it was the idea of Tuni Kasugi. And it was actually one of a series of meetings in which scientists, regulators, academics, and companies interested in plant biotechnology would brainstorm together about how to think about and regulate any of the risks that might be associated with the new technology. I don't think this is the norm when it comes to regulation. Most regulatory regimes are put in place after there's been some problem. In this case, this new industry and all of its public and private sector contacts were consciously trying to make sure that there were never any issues, and there haven't been. And as I mentioned earlier, the kind of cautious approach that they were doing actually began back with that Asilomar conference back in 1975, and 13 years later, that was still the tone. There were not commercial biotech products until the 1995-96 timeframe. And many years before that, this public-private consortium had come up with what they called the Coordinated Framework for the Regulation of Plant Biotechnology. It was an elaborate system with roles for the USDA, the EPA, and the FDA. As far as I know, there is no other industry in U.S. history that has voluntarily committed to a proactive multi-agency regulatory regime Prior to anything that they ever commercialized. In 1996, several biotech crops were finally available to farmers in the US and Canada. And the speed and enthusiasm which those in the farming community adopted the technology actually surprised a lot of the people, the insiders in the plant protection and seed companies that I knew. By that time, I had spent several years working at a biocontrol company that was just launching. And I was just starting to launch my independent consultant role. And I was asked to write a biotech primer to help people in the ag industry catch up with this new technology. And I also got to cover the New Leaf insect resistant biotech potato for a multi-client report. And that meant I got to interview lots of potato growers and, and understand their excitement about the technology. And while I was in that biotech company, I got to know scientists in a Japanese company partner that we had, and they actually ended up discovering a strain of that agrobacterium that now basically everybody uses if they're going to do genetic engineering of grasses or grains. For a few years in the 90s, there was really widespread excitement about the potential for biotech applications in lots of crops. There was a startup funded by academic researchers in Hawaii who were trying to develop coffee plants that never made any caffeine so that you could have a full-flavored decaf. Other companies were working on ways to make bananas stay in a desirable degree of ripeness longer before turning black on your counter. There was a project for potatoes to allow them to be stored at lower temperature without having the discoloration that can happen there. And uh, that was a food waste reduction thing. And there was a biotech disease-resistant wheat in development that could prevent contamination from a fungal mycotoxin that can lead to rejection of that wheat for food or feed. But by the late 90s and early 2000s the anti-gmo forces had managed to create enough societal angst and food system brand protectionism to all but shut down the most interesting potential applications of plant genetic engineering i'm of course disappointed that all the cool options never got any chance to happen i'm also sad that somehow the whole technology was successfully characterized as some irresponsible agenda of big business. It was hard for me to witness this because I knew the sincere and well-intentioned and creative people who were were behind that new science. And many excellent applications of biotech that could benefit people in the developing world have been blocked by what I like to call green imperialism, anti-technology positions enforced by well-fed people in the rich world that basically deny benefits to people in the poor world. Now, some plant biotech projects have continued even in the face of the activist resistance, including a rice that produces vitamin A that could protect poor children in Africa and Asia from blindness or death. And there are apples and potatoes that don't turn brown after cutting or grating, and I I really wish those were much more widely available in stores today. And there's a great new thing with a biotech salmon that grows much faster and requires less food. Probably not going to be something you'll be able to actually buy in the store because of the activism. So only a small fraction of the potential contributions of that biotechnology have made it into our food supply. So, do I sound bitter? I guess. I may have just been an accidental tourist in the realm of plant biotech, but what I saw over the years were dedicated, creative, careful people who could have ushered in a much more beneficial contribution to society that has been not allowed. Because of all the investment in biotechnology for medicine and industrial purposes, the tools available for people working in this field today are light years ahead of what they were back in the 80s or 90s. For instance, biotech could be used to prevent contamination of grains and nuts with a truly dangerous mycotoxin called aflatoxin. It's a major cause of cancer and death in the developing world. That could happen. And there could be important new tools for pest management, nutritional enhancement, and food waste prevention. There's so much potential. And other than the regulatory barriers, this has become something now that could actually be pursued by small companies or academic labs. So let's hope that maybe in the future, we'll all be able to be an accidental tourist of a happier solution along these lines. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.